We're going to start this morning with our memory verse of the month. Our memory verse for the month of June is going to be Haggai 2.9. So if you'll recite with me, Haggai 2.9. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Haggai 2.9. We'll talk more about this verse as we get a little bit further into the message today. It was a couple of months ago that Emily and I were driving back from one of the school activities for uh, one of the students in the church. And as we were driving back, I distinctly remember I told Emily, I said, do you remember back when we were in school how different it was in X way? And I caught myself. I was like, oh, no, I just did it. I just did the back in my day, the yesteryear-itis. I guess I'm getting old. It turns out, (laughs) reflecting on yesteryear is easy to do. Reflecting back and saying, back when I remember it, it was so much better. That's something that we all fall victim to. And that's actually what we're going to be looking at today in the passage of Haggai, is exactly that problem that came up for the Jews. You see, we can get so caught up in focusing on the wonder of how things used to be that we lose strength. We lose our strength in the midst of frustration. We lose our strength in the midst of disappointment. When in reality, the problem is not the way things used to be versus the way things are today. The problem is that we've lost our focus on Jesus. We need to remember that the God who brought glory yesterday brings glory today and will bring glory tomorrow. It's not about what we did. It's not about how things were. It's about God. And that's going to be the theme as we dig in to Haggai. So if you want to be turning in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, I want to sort of set the stage and remind you of the book of Haggai. We started the book of Haggai last week. And remember sort of how this all comes to be. King David reigns. After King David, King Solomon takes the throne, David's son. Solomon builds the temple, and it is a magnificent temple, a beautiful temple. After Solomon, Rehoboam takes the throne, and the kingdom splits in half under Rehoboam. The northern half becomes the kingdom of Israel, and the southern half, the kingdom of Judah. In 722, after the kingdom of Israel went into all sorts of idolatry, God sends the Assyrian Empire in and conquers the kingdom of Israel. They take him out of the land. The kingdom of Israel ceases to exist. The kingdom of Judah remains until 586 BC, when Judah has fallen far enough away from God that God sends in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire burns Solomon's temple to the ground and hauls all of the people from Jerusalem away. In 539 BC, Cyrus, the Persian king, Persia is now in in power in the world, Cyrus issues an edict that the Jews are to go back and rebuild the temple. 
He says, go back to Jerusalem. I'm sending you back and you are to rebuild the temple. Two years after Cyrus's edict, so in 537 BC, they lay the foundation of the temple. But then life happens and they stop their work and the temple sits. A foundation, but no temple for 16 years. It's at the end of that 16-year period that Haggai comes on the scene, a prophet from God with a message for his people. In Haggai 1, the message is, build the temple. It has set for 16 years. It is set for long enough. It's time to get to work. It's time to finish the task. That's Haggai chapter 1. Let's pick up in Haggai chapter 2, and let's start with verses one through three. Haggai chapter two, verses one through three. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and ask the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you, Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will finish this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The issue, remember, they started building the temple. And the issue that they've now come across is, we're putting a lot of work into this temple. And it's just, we remember Solomon's temple. It was beautiful. This isn't measuring up. You see, everyone, especially here the Jews, but everyone is susceptible to a little yesteryear-itis. And no, you won't find that word in the dictionary. (laughs) But we're all susceptible to this. And this is exactly what is happening here, is the people are looking at this temple that they're building, and some of them probably were alive to have seen the destruction of Solomon's temple. And they look at this project and they say, it's just not the same. It's just not as good. It's just not measuring up to what we wanted. You see, large projects inevitably hit snags. Snags bring frustration and disappointed. Large projects cause problems and the people are facing this. This prophecy, again, we're told the exact date that this occurred. This prophecy occurred on October 17th, 520 BC. 
We're told exactly when this occurred. Remember Haggai chapter 1, August 29th, 520 BC? So we're a month and a half later. So a month and a half into the building project, the people are looking at their work and they're saying, it's just not as good as we had hoped. It was so much better with Solomon's temple. Things just aren't as good. They're probably also really busy. If you were to look at a Jewish calendar for 520 BC, what you would find is that between August 29th and October 17th, the Jewish calendar was filled with the busiest time for Jewish religious festivals. It started with the Feast of Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. All three major feasts occurred between August 29th and October 17th. Actually, October 17th would have been the penultimate day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a giant week-long camping trip, for lack of a better way of putting it. Everybody in the entire nation was commanded to pick up their stuff, or at least some of their stuff, make a trip to the city of Jerusalem, pitch a tent, and live in the tent for eight days. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. So everybody is around Jerusalem, living in tents, looking at this temple that's just not as far along as they wanted, not as beautiful as they wanted. I don't know if you've ever gone camping, but by the end of seven days, you're probably getting pretty tired of the people you're around. A little bit crabby. The timing here is perfect. Haggai addresses the people and he addresses the problem. I imagine they were tired. I imagine they had hoped that in a period of a month, they would have made a lot more progress than they had made. I imagine the original excitement of Haggai 1, of actually starting the project, had become frustration by Haggai 2 of a month and a half of just hard work. And it's not just a certain person that can be affected by this. It can affect everybody. You see, large projects affect people at all levels. Look at who Haggai addresses. He addresses Zerubbabel in verse 2. Zerubbabel was the leader, the, you might think of it as almost like the governor of the area. He had led the group of exiles 16 years earlier. He had led the group of exiles out of Babylon to Jerusalem. He, with the help of Joshua, the high priest, had been given the task of rebuilding the temple. He had told the people this was a Jewish job. We need to rebuild our own temple. Let's not hire outside work. We need to do this ourselves. He was the leader. And Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel. Haggai also speaks to Joshua, the high priest. The governor needs encouragement. The religious leader, Joshua, the high priest, he needs encouragement. This is the person who's going to be using the temple. God tells Haggai, encourage him. Yes, I know he's got the relationship with God. He's the person who spends the most time with God. It doesn't mean he doesn't need encouraged. God says, encourage Joshua. And then all the people. Talk to all the people. Everybody here needs encouragement. See, large projects affect people at all levels, and everybody needs encouragement at times. 
Finally, in verse three, we see that God says, bring the issue to light. Frustrations and disappointments discussed in secret were brought into the light. And I think this is really important here. It would be wonderful if nobody got frustrated. It'd be wonderful if nobody was disappointed. But people were. And they made it bad because they started talking about it. That's the impression I get from here. They started whispering about it. You know, on their way out of the city, back to their tent. Two guys walking down the street. Yeah, it's just not cutting it, is it? It's just not as good. I just, I, I wish that, you know, Solomon was here to build this temple. It'd be a lot better. And they're, whispers are starting to form. And God says, all right, you guys are talking about this. Let's just bring it out. Let's put it out in the open. Who of you is left? Who saw the house? Who saw Solomon's temple in its former glory? Let's hear from you. Did you notice this temple doesn't look as good, does it? Bring it out into the light. Let's voice our disappointments and our frustrations because God's going to use that in just a minute. By using three questions, God brings voice to their frustrations and disappointments. Who of you saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like it's insignificant and nothing compared to what you remember? And then God will use that here in just a minute. We're 10 months into our construction project. And we've got just a little bit of time left to go. We've hit snags. We've had victories. We could focus on the good things that have happened. We could focus on the bad things that would happen. But I'm going to challenge us. Why not focus on God? Why not put our focus on God? And that's exactly what Haggai is going to encourage the people to do. Let's put an action step to what we've just said. I want you to take a second and ask yourself, where have you allowed your focus on yesteryear to take your eyes off of God? The past is wonderful. God was in the past. The present is wonderful. God's in the present. And the future will be wonderful. God's in the future. But if you focus on anything other than God, you will be disappointed. Focus on God. And guess what? Our God is unchanging. That is a beautiful picture. In verses four through five, what I see is the solution to frustration and disappointment. You see, frustration and disappointment should be confronted with strength and faith. Frustrations and disappointments are confronted by strength and faith. In verse four, again, Haggai addresses people at all levels. You see, people at all levels must confront frustration and disappointment with strength. Look at the commands given. Look at the people addressed. In verse four, but now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. The word be strong is a powerful word. Chazak in Hebrew. It's got this idea of 
hardening oneself for work. Hardening oneself, self-motivating, I'm going to get to it, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to take my strength and be strong. Actually, it's the same word that David gave to Solomon when David turned over the throne to Solomon. David told his son, be strong for the task in front of you for building this temple. It's going to take your determination. It's going to take your strength. It's going to take a monumental effort. And if you don't go into the task with strength, you might find yourself unprepared. Be strong. See, real strength and faith motivate action. Real strength and faith will motivate action. The true measure of strength and faith is action. That's the idea behind James 2.26. You might recall James 2.26. says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A claim of faith in the absence of action should be met with suspicion. A claim of faith in the absence of action should be met with suspicion. Faith demands action. Strength demands action. The real command here that Haggai is giving is to be strong. Be strong. Be strong. Why? Because the Lord is with you. You see, we can take strength. The Jews could take strength because the God of heaven was there. You don't need to fear. You don't need to worry because God has been faithful in the past. And God is with you. God declares, for I am with you. See, ultimately, our strength comes from God. And our faith is in God's faithfulness. Ultimately, our strength comes from God. And our faith is in his faithfulness. In verse 5, God reminds the people. This is what I covenanted with you. God reminded people, I promised you, I made a covenant with you that I would be with you. When was this covenant? All the way back when you first came out of Egypt. That's what God told the people. Now, I want you to think about that. I've already gone through some of the timeline. We're in about 520 BC. The exodus from Egypt was probably around 1400 BC. So we're talking 900 years. If you look at Israel's history, in that 900 years, they walked away from God numerous times, time and time again. And God said, I promised I'd be with you. I will remain with you. You might walk away. I will remain with you. I promised I would be with you. I have covenanted this with you. And God remains faithful. Throughout Israel's history, the people failed, yet God remained faithful. And so God says, be strong. Why? Because the faithful God of the Exodus is with you. The spirit that took Israel out of Egypt 
was with them. By the way, that same faithful God is with us today, just to be clear. Be strong was the command. Frustration and disappointment are reality, but confront those with strength and faith. Our action step. Determine to confront frustration and disappointment with strength and faith. I've mentioned it before, but uh, when I was at UNL, about three years into my career there uh, teaching at UNL, I was put on a committee that was uh, really tasked with uncovering why students drop out of college. And we did a lot of work. We got to where we could predict students who would drop out with an incredible high level of accuracy. And the determining factor on whether a student would make it through college or not was what we called grit. It was nothing new. It's a psychological term that that really got coined, oh, in like 2016. uh, A writer started writing about this thing called grit. And what they really mean is determination. The ability to say, I'm going to do this. I will be strong. No matter what happens, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it through. And that was the big determining factor. Here, God says to the people, be strong. Put on your grit and get to it. Meet your frustration and your disappointment with a determination that empowered by God, you will be strong. Follows that up in verses six through nine by now addressing the big concern. Remember the concern? This temple just isn't up to snuff. It just isn't as nice as the old one. We're disappointed. We're frustrated. And what God says in verses six through nine is that the truth is that our unchanging God is the only real source of glory. Our unchanging God is the only real source of glory. In verses 6 through the first half of verse 7, what I see is a command, don't settle for anything less than God's glory. God says, in a little while, just wait. I know you're disappointed in how this looks right now, but be patient. Don't settle for less. Just wait. In a little while... What does God say? I will once again shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. What God is saying is, I will show my power. He's not saying that he's literally going to necessarily shake heaven and earth. He's saying, I'm going to show my power. Heavens, earth, sea, and dry land, those are figures of speech called merisms. So here's your figure of speech lesson. A merism is when you use two extremes to mean the extremes and everything in between. So it's a poetic device. When you say heaven and earth, what God's saying is, my power is going to be displayed in heaven, on earth, and everywhere in between. When he says the oceans and the dry land or the sea and the dry land, he's saying from the ocean to the desert and every type of climate zone in between. God's power is going to be shown. God says, you're looking at this temple and you're saying it's not as good as the one before. Just wait. Don't settle. 
just wait. It is going to be beautiful. And he follows this up in verses 7 and 8 with the people by saying, recognize that it's God who brings the glory, not a physical object. It is God who brings the glory. Solomon's temple was magnificent. Dick Clark taught a Sunday school on Solomon's temple oh, about a year ago, and he did some research. Solomon's temple had somewhere near 600 talents of gold in the temple. Now you probably say 600 talents. What does that mean? 23 tons. 23 tons of gold in the temple. They do so much gold that even the nails were made out of gold for decorative purposes. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of gold. The temple curtains were made of beautiful blues and purples with some crimson yarn weaved in. There were pictures of cherubim angels woven into the curtains. There was a temple veil, the thickness of the palm of your hand. So here to here, a curtain that thick, separating the most holy place from the holy place. Beautiful construction. Pillars 53 feet tall. In the ancient world, that's amazing. Solomon's temple was magnificent. But what God reminds him, it's not the temple. It's not the physical object that brought glory. It was the God who brought the glory. All the wealth in the world, God says, is mine. I own the silver and the gold. You guys are so concerned with how much gold was in Solomon's temple. Do you not realize that I own it and I could put more in if I wanted to? It reminds me of a, a saying that one of the pastors here used to say, talking about raising money. He would say, uh, the problem is not the money. The problem is it's stuck in people's pockets. God has the money. God has the silver and the gold. God wanted his people to realize that it was not actually about the gold. It was about God. You see, ultimately, the ultimate display of God's glory is his grace and mercy. You might look at this and you might say, okay, you have convinced me that it is about God, but the Ark of the Covenant was in Solomon's temple. So God's presence was in Solomon's temple. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Look at what is said in verse 9, the memory verse that we had. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. I want to tell you in what way this prophecy was fulfilled. You see, Solomon's temple was beautiful. They did finish this temple. And they did ordain it uh, with lots of gold and decorate it. It was beautiful. But more than that, guess who was dedicated 520 or so years later in this temple? Jesus. Guess who cleansed this temple? Jesus. God himself in the flesh physically walked 
in this temple. And ultimately, Jesus brought peace. You see, peace between men, that's one thing. Peace between man and God, that's a whole different ballgame. And Jesus died on the cross after having walked in this temple, giving himself for our sins, paying the penalty for sins on the cross, bringing peace between God and those who accept Jesus as their personal Savior. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil, remember this curtain that was the thickness of your palm, was torn in half from top to bottom, signifying that the place that was divided, the holy place from the most holy place, was now accessible to all who go to Jesus to confess their sins and accept his payment on the cross for their sins. That is the glory that God brings. Have you ever tried to recreate something special while missing the special ingredient? Let me give you an example. When we were younger, I'd like to say kids, but a lot of my childish things have been when I'm an adult. So, um, when, when we were younger, we used to have uh, a lot of people over to our house and we'd play Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds on like eight computers all linked together. If you know what that is, you can get your nerd badge at the door. Um, otherwise, uh, it's a video game that we'd, we'd all play. And we would stay up late into the night playing it and we would get such big armies battling each other that the whole network would crash and then we'd go home. And this was a lot of fun for us. We thought it was really fun. And so uh, a few years ago, I, I got all a bunch of old computers and I inserted the discs and I sat down because I was going to play this game by myself. And it was nowhere near as fun. And I realized that it actually wasn't the game that was fun at all. It was the time with the other people that was fun. See, the secret ingredient was the fellowship I had with my friends. The secret ingredient is not the gold in the temple. The secret ingredient is not the beauty on the walls. The secret ingredient is God. So my action step, my challenge is let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the construction that's been done. Let's celebrate the construction that still is to go. Let's celebrate the time we have together. Let's celebrate together, not because we're finished. We still have a lot of work to do. Not because it's beautiful. Not because it's going to be beautiful. Let's celebrate because God is in this. And that is worth our celebration. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the one that brings the glory. I thank you that it is not mere gold, mere silver that brings glory. But rather, it is the God of the universe. You own the silver and the gold, and it's trivial. You bring glory. You have brought great glory and pain for our sins. And we thank you for that. We thank you for working in our church. 
We thank you for working among us. Father, I pray that we would put our focus on you as the one who brings the glory. I thank you for the progress we've made in our construction project. I look forward to sharing some of that in our church family meeting. I look forward to being able to talk about it in emails. But Lord, that's not where the glory comes. The glory comes from you. May we never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.